and you are listening to the Money Mitch Effect. Hello, hello, I am Mitch Michaels, and I'm not Brent Musburger, though that was as close as I'm going to get to him. This is the Money Mitch Effect, a sports podcast. Delighted to have you with me on today's show, NBA Draft Recap with Todd Speedburner Robinson. We do a deep dive into everything, including the Jimmy Butler trade. Not going to want to miss that. Some Wimbledon thoughts as well at the end of that. And then Steve Leveny, my baseball correspondent, is going to break down the halfway point of the MLB season, what each division race looks like, and what we can expect from the second half of the season. Some hot and some cold teams there to discuss. This is the Money Mitch Effect. I'm Mitch Michaels. Let's start the show. All right, it's being recorded now on a Monday night. Money Mitch Effect, Mitch Michaels here. I'm excited for this one. Todd Speed, Bernard Robinson, back on the show. Reoccurring guest to discuss the 2017 NBA draft. Todd, you've become a, a, a staple of sorts on this show. We're recording this late because we were full of draft takes, but thanks for joining the show. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. I, uh, I got excited for this one because uh, I love drafts. Yeah, a lot of notes, a lot of notes, and we're we're going to get into exactly how it went down the 2017 NBA draft that there was a lot of, of flair and, and pomp and circumstance for it. I think deservedly so, Todd. We thought going into the draft that this was one of the deeper talent drafts at the top that we've seen with about eight or so surefire prospects, maybe as many as 10 boot chip right off the beginning. But also, and you brought this up before we went on, Todd, we're still not quite sure who the best is, and it wouldn't surprise a lot of people if years down the road the best prospect in this draft wasn't drafted in the top two, three, maybe even five or six. Well, that certainly happens a lot. Uh, look at 2013, uh, Bennett went first. And oh, you can, God. <laughs> you can take two dozen guys or maybe maybe four dozen guys who are better than him. I mean, is he in the league anymore? That, that's, <laughs> no. that's an extreme case. But, yeah, no doubt. But even if it was a good player taking number one in 2013, Greek Freak, pretty much the best player there. And then later in that draft, Gobert went 27th, I think, in the 2013. So, yeah, there's always those gems who slip. Uh, so, And that could be the case here for sure. Well, the first two picks were to be expected the day of the draft. This 76ers traveled, or traded up, I should say, to number one with the Celtics that was designed to get Markel Fultz. The Lakers trade D'Angelo Russell you know, a couple days before the draft themselves. All signs then pointing to taking Lonzo Ball. So, Todd, there wasn't a lot of drama. We knew where one and two were going to go. But the end results are Fultz one to Philly, Ball number two to the Lakers. What do you think about these guys? They're, they're coming into the draft one and two. They're going to teams that have certainly needed the help. Do you like the fit for one more than the other, or do you think both can really succeed on their respective clubs? Well, when you talk about the word fit, that, that's interesting as it relates to Fultz because really, who could say? Because Embiid has only played 31 games for that team in his three-year career. Ben Simmons, none. Sarek, you know, kind of came on pretty strong in the second half of last year, but that's when Embiid wasn't playing. So you're going to have really, and those are kind of their main four assets now, the new guy, Fultz who looks like a pretty polished offensive player for a young uh, a young player in terms of he just looks smooth. He's got an array of shots. He can shoot from distance. Um, not a strong defender, but, you know, he's got some size at least to mm-hmm. him. 
But how he'll play with the other big three in Philly, um, Embiid and Sarek and uh, Ben Simmons, and then you know you throw in Covington, who's just been a, a rock-solid kind of guy there for, for the whole uh, what process that started with Hanky a few years ago. So it's tough to say how he fits there, but but he's a nice player. I just not being an elite athlete and having questions on his defense makes you think, wow, and he's number one overall. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those years where not a true number one was really available. But um, and then you go Lonzo, and again, there's the good and the bad. There's that elite kind of very special, rare passing ability versus you know not a great defender kind of average athleticism does the funky shot get off efficiently in the nba or do longer more athletic defenders force him to kind of have to adjust that so yeah the one thing though and i was i was emailing a buddy of mine today about the draft and i was saying that i do think ball should be top 10 maybe even top eight in assists because he's a very selfless player he tends to maybe even let the game come to him too much. I noticed watching him this season, he seems to, as much as he's a point guard, he's not a ball dominant, like ball hog by in any sense. He kind of is happy to, to sit back a bit and let the teammates work it out at times. And, yeah. and he'll go on these spurts. Yeah. And I think for Fultz, I'm glad you brought that up because I know quite a few Sixer fans that are, you know, licking their chops, the prospects of, having all these great young players. They have to get on the floor first. I mean, we've been waiting for a lot of these guys to play. I'd like to see it, but, you know, Simmons hasn't played a single NBA regular season game yet, and Bede has been hurt on and off for the last three, four years. So Fultz could fit in well with that team. They needed that combo guard. They needed somebody in their backcourt to make plays. And Lonzo Ball, in that case, Todd, um, and another thing that I think is worth mentioning again I think the trade of D'Angelo Russell was for defensive purposes. You talked about Ball's one weakness is probably not being an elite defender. To have a backcourt with him to succeed, and I agree he's a great passer, but defensively he's a work in progress, and I just didn't think that Russell and Ball together was going to work defensively in the same backcourt. You totally called that, uh, what was it, the last day of the French Open? Oh, yeah. Together, you called that Russell kind of had to go if they were going to take either one of those guys. And sure enough, I think within a week of, of that podcast, uh, you know, that that trade happened, uh, you know, a few days before the draft. So nice call there. Yeah, I get lucky, I get lucky sometimes. But and uh, I do also want to bring up, you know, you mentioned, Todd, that you're not sure that if this draft is going to have that that alpha, that, you know, dominant looks like Hall of Fame type player. And, that, and that, that's a ways away. We're not entirely sure. But I do think that reasoning, that way of thinking makes what the Celtics did look pretty good as we'll segue into their pick at number three, Jason Tatum. Now, we can argue over whether we think Tatum deserved to go here, is the third best player, is the best fit in Boston. But, Todd, if you thought that this draft might not have a, a true alpha, I think trading down is a great thing. No doubt. And to be honest, I thought it was odd that Philly wanted to jump up two spots so badly. T to me... Fultz doesn't stand, you know, so far above that you're willing to give up. And I know they've got a lot of future assets. They've been spending the last four or five years, you know, collecting those assets. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you necessarily burn them for, for the hell of it. I mean, I mean, geez, you can burn them for an established, you know, NBA all-star. There's where you really, I think, want to burn your assets more. 
Um, so yeah, Boston, I think a genius move, whether Tatum is or is not the right number three, uh, that will remain to be seen again, like all these players, there's pluses and minuses. He looks very polished offensively, nice all around game, just not really anywhere close to an elite athlete. And, um, you know, some guys who aren't great athletes, they, they're just so savvy and smart, they adjust to the NBA nonetheless. Right. James Harden is a pretty good example of that, and there's many others I can't think of off the top of my head right now. But um, does Tatum become that kind of guy? We will see. I don't think he'll have a lot of heavy minutes on a very good, you know, probably 55-58 win Boston team next year where they've got Jay Crowder and Jalen Brown already at that position. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and I think this was the Tatum versus Jackson debate. It was clear they wanted a wing player, and I like this move, Tatum over Jackson, in Boston's case for a couple reasons. One being that Jackson, to me, is too similar to Jalen Brown, uh, an elite-level athlete. But I don't think, you know, you talk about ball shooting motion. Jackson was not a great shooter. I mean, I think the tape will back that up. Now, he's an elite-level defender and can do great things, and I think fits in better at the four spot in this draft, Phoenix, where they took him. But I think Tatum can give him more of a polished offensive game. And when you're trying to compete, Todd, this is what it all comes down to. You're trying to compete with the Warriors, and you're trying to compete in the new age NBA. I think these wing players are the most valuable commodities you can have, so it doesn't hurt to kind of stockpile them in a sense. Give yourself no, more chances. I think that's what Boston's doing by taking Tatum here. No doubt. And I think you mentioned competing with uh, the Golden States, you know. And to do that, you want as many tools in your shed as possible. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, the Josh Jackson tool is very similar to the Jalen Brown tool. You know, elite athleticism, um, you know, not quite so polished. Uh, and Tatum's really kind of the, the, the yin and yang to that, um, the flip side of that. So it, I, think it, I think it makes sense for them to go in that direction with that pick. Honestly, though, upside-wise, and I'm getting ahead of myself, if you drop to number six, Isaac for Boston okay. <laughs> looks maybe just a tad more interesting than either one of those guys because he kind of blends a little bit of shooting polish of Tatum and a little bit of elite athleticism of Jackson in a taller package. I don't know. I, I, to me, he was very intriguing if you want to go in that direction. Okay. No, I have I have a few thoughts on that, but we're going to wait till we, till we get to the sixth pick with Isaac to break that down. But I do want to say quickly, Todd, I know, you know, Phoenix is probably not going to be going anywhere in the near future, but I know you're an athleticism guy and you like offense and, and high scoring. Jackson and Devin Booker together could be could be good for the league pass watchers of uh, the world like myself. That'll be interesting. Now, you have to remember, though, T.J. Warren in Phoenix, he now has three years under his belt, and he's really kind of, especially last year, established himself as someone who is a legit NBA scorer, can rebound a bit, um, grab some steals. He, he's a nice little player, and, and I don't know if they're going to bring Jackson off the bench because he could be kind of the D and energy guy. And then TJ Warren could be an elite sixth man. He could get off the bench and, and really uh, he could kind of crush, I think, second units offensively. So it'll be interesting to see how they divvy up time. But they have some interesting young assets there with, like you said, Booker and then Bledsoe in the backcourt mm-hmm. if, if he could just stay healthy. 
Uh, and then Marquise Chris, who they took uh, pretty high. I think he was a, a borderline lottery um, pick in last year's draft and had his up-and-down moments. He's more of a four, kind of a skinny, athletic, uh, versatile four. But they, they've got some assets to, to scout there and, and kind of let stew and, and mix in together. They do. Things might be looking up for Phoenix for the first time in a while. We'll have to keep tabs on that. But all right, Todd Robinson, Money Mitch Effect. We move now out of the top four, and this pick in particular, Todd, the Sacramento Kings at number five. A lot of people, and I think you're in that camp, think this might have been the best value pick of the first round. De'Aaron Fox is the third point guard technically taken in this draft so far, but a lot of people think he's just as good as Fultz and Ball. Are you in that camp, and do you think Sacramento got one hell of a player and quite a steal here, quite frankly, at the number five position? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, three point guards in the top five, and they all three, it's like the flavors are orange, apple, and lime. You know, they're all very different. Like, they're not, none of the two are like really play like each other. Um, And Fox separates himself athletically and with his defense from the other two who are a little taller. Um, You would call Fultz maybe the most well rounded offensively. Clearly ball, the best vision, passer, feel for the game guy. And whereas Fox becomes the best athlete, end-to-end quickness, he really looks like his uh, you know, Kentucky brethren, John Wall. He's skinny. He's maybe got less bulk than both of them. Mm-hmm. But um, athletically, you know, if he can, his right hand, he's really left-hand dominant. He's got to develop his right hand, and he's got to, you know, kind of work on that outside shot. But he's young. And I just, I think I'm a little surprised that when he went head-to-head with Ball in the tournament, you've got two elite prospects, top five both, and um, it's the most important game of their lives. And it seems like the NBA didn't really weigh that mano-a-mano battle so heavy because, you know, Ball went two three, or three slots higher. And isn't that what it's all about? Like, oh, you, you draft these guys so you can win at elite level, you know, right. at elite times, at, at the cr- uh, clutch times, uh, playoffs and all. And, and that's it. It's the biggest game of Ball and Fox's career, Sweet 16. And, you know, Ball lays a turd and Fox goes <laughs> off. I don't know why the NBA doesn't weigh that heavier. But, you know. There's a we'll good chance, you know, Todd, there's a good chance that Fox is as good as any player in this draft. And I agree that that didn't get enough Fox, I think, didn't get enough credit. I, I'm, I understand that one game is one game in college, and, and you can't just say one player played better in this circumstance that they're going to be better. But Fox is a gamer. He wants to win. He might have the best competitive drive of anyone in this draft. I'll say this, and, and this is just my way of thinking, uh, coming at it like in a different way. I think it might be hard for some of these NBA scouts to evaluate Kentucky players. You have all these parade All-Americans, and you're not sure – you know who's t- who's the main reason for being successful, and whose skills can translate at the next level. I mean, think about it, Todd. All these Kentucky guys getting drafted, and would you say the success rate is about fifty percent for these lottery picks? Oh, uh, I you know well, I mean a lot of because they don't all pan out. You know that's look at, said. look at the twenty ten team, uh, which is they've really pretty much panned out. Bledsoe. Yeah. Elite athlete, elite point guard, just got to stay healthy. John Wall, enough said. DeMarcus Cousins, you know, when that guy's head is on straight, he crushes and dominates. He wouldn't be the fifth pick now. He'd be higher, which, ironically, 
Cousins was Sacto's fifth pick in 2010. Fox is their fifth pick, same school in 2017. Yeah. Seven years later, that five spot, I think it treats them well. But yeah, and you know Patrick Patterson from from that 2010 team, he's been a solid, I don't know, sixth, seventh guy. You know, those guys have mostly panned out. Obviously, Anthony Davis has panned out. Um, I think Trey Lyles was a couple years ago and has mm. been kind of slow to develop. And Utah moved him on draft night, so I'm pretty sure Trey Lyles is Kentucky. Right. Am I correct? Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. And and I think I mean a lot of these players have succeeded, but my point being, we're not entirely sure, you know, where the talent, you know how it is, uh, I guess, rationed out, so to speak. And I think Fox is a great player. I like him in Sacramento to be this point guard of the future. And another thing, just to kind of put a bow on this, Todd, Sacramento, the the best thing they could have done here is what they did, just staying pat and knowing that one of these five prospects was going to fall to them. No doubt. And, you, and you know, let's just say that all three point guards were snatched and obviously Sacto has a need there. You know, at five, they could have taken Isaac, who's, you know, a real big upside guy and, and kind of seen seen what he can do they did the right thing i think philly if i'm philly i sit there at three i don't make any trade and i draft fox mm, um so yeah. i i thought that was knowing that there's three pretty elite point guards and you're drafting third i, I again i'm i know i'm beating that horse again but i just don't understand that move so we shall see i suppose we shall and the number six pick was Jonathan Isaac to Orlando, out of Florida State. He's you know six ten, physically ready, you know as as ready to go as any NBA prospect is in this draft. And getting back to Boston, Todd, I think he might not have fit what they were trying to do. And it's a gamble on a player that has tremendous upside. But you know, having seen some of those Florida State games last year, you know he struggled. He's raw. He's got a lot to develop. Boston's already a top seed in the East, one of the premier teams. I think it's better for him and it's better for the respective teams that he's in a situation like Orlando where, you know, they're basically starting from scratch at this point. Yes, he, Orlando started Aaron Gordon and Terrence Ross at small forward in the latter stages of the season last year. Yeah, they were, and they only won 29 games on the year. So Sad. he comes into a situation where I know they liked Gordon more at the, uh, at the small forward or at the um, power forward. So, and Isaac, I think, has the agility, athleticism to play the three as a tall guy. So, yeah, he's thrown into a situation where I think he could potentially start right away. And I think battle for rookie of the year, which, by the way, I think Fox has as good a chance at rookie of the year as any of these guys. But I think Isaac is also like kind of a more of a dark horse rookie of the year because they're going to give him a long leash and he'll play. But back to your Boston thoughts with this. What if you say you're Boston, look, we have a lot of strong small forwards. What if we drafted Isaac and, you know, stashed him on our bench 10 to 12 minutes a night first half of the season? Maybe that expands to 15 in the second half or more, depending on how he shakes out if there's injuries. I think Boston was in a position to draft him, and they had that luxury to develop him. But, um, you know, they chose not yeah. to. And I think I think it'll be a nice pick for Orlando. I like Isaac a lot. Yeah, I guess I'm still on the Tatum train, though. I think he can be a, a pretty polished player uh, in the NBA and for that team. So I think both these guys are going to succeed. We'll, we'll just have to see, you know, monitor their success for their respective team teams. All right, Todd Robinson, Money Mitch Effect, Speed Burner. This is the time of the show where I was really trying to to save the best for, for this moment here. It's what was supposed to be 
the Minnesota Timberwolves pick at seven. But the big blockbuster trade on draft night was Jimmy Butler being traded from the Chicago Bulls to the Minnesota Timberwolves. The deal was, and I'm going to read this hopefully without laughing as I get through it, but Jimmy Butler in the number 16 pick, which was eventually center Justin Patton from Creighton, go to Minnesota in exchange right. for Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, and the number 7 pick, which was from Finland by way of Arizona, Laurie Markkinen. Now, I want to start with this. From the trade itself standpoint, before the dots were filled in, I understand that Jimmy Butler was probably an unhappy camper. Chicago's looking at a full-on rebuild. And these trades, as difficult as they are, unfortunately sometimes have to happen. But Todd, Chicago got absolutely fleeced in this deal. I don't know how there's any other way to look at it, especially considering that they also gave up the 16 pick, which is the most ridiculous underrated detail of this trade. But, you know, they give up they give up Butler, they give up the 16 pick for a promising guard, Zach Levine, who was injured last year. We're not sure how he's going to come back. A 23-year-old rookie point guard last year who did not look very good. And then a yeah, draft pick that ends up being for a guy done last year. Yeah, and then a draft pick that was a guy from Finland who I don't know how he's going to defend at the next level, who was I think drafted a lot higher than he should have been, and I don't know where he fits in in the Chicago offense. So a lot of question marks. And oh, by the way, they gave up a top fifteen player in the NBA. Not an ideal night for the Chicago Bulls. You know, it works better if Chicago makes a better seventh overall selection. I mean, <laughs> I, I looked at a good amount of film of Lori. I don't think the NBA is ready for a Lori. Um, nope. And if, <laughs> if and when they are ready for a Lori, it's not going to be this string bean, seven-foot softy. I mean, the, and the guy's he got really short arms. He's he like abnormally short arms for a 6'11", seven-foot guy. He's kind of soft. His rebounding was horrid. Defensively, <laughs> yeah, he's he just he's can, this guy. can be bullied. He can just be bullied defensively. There's another couple guys we'll talk about later in the draft who also can be bullied defensively. But there's guys in this draft who taken 10 spots below Markinen who the quickie eye test, you go, well, this guy's got to be at least as good. Uh, I'm thinking of the Milwaukee guy, and I don't even like him a DJ lot. DJ Wilson, yeah. Yeah, DJ Wilson. He he's a soft guy, but he can block shots and play defense, and he's got really long arms. Yeah, and it's seventeen versus seven. <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah, and he's soft though. Like he he really doesn't like contact. This DJ Wilson guy that Milwaukee took, but he can block shots, and he's got better lateral movement on defense, and he's got a seven, I think seven four, seven five wingspan. Really freaky. He looks real long, but yeah, this this guy that Markin and I just. Wow, wow, wow. It, it could be skittish Vili if you remember him. Oh, from man. New draft Denver many years ago. That's a heck of a reference, and I, and I hope for Chicago's sake it isn't him. But I, 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 I don't know what you're thinking. There's a guy <laughs> Toronto took at number 23. I, I would bet a good amount of money he has a better NBA career, a more productive oh, okay. career than you like Mark. You, so you like Kenobi, who's going to probably miss this year. But, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> you know, he's still recovering for the injury. 
is he is he hurt this year? Yeah, I believe this. He was uh, UK. You know, went to Indiana from the UK, and I think toward the end of the season, if I have this correct, he he had a major injury. I think it was a knee injury. But you know, he's a guy that would have been you know lottery talent. Uh, it's just you have to wait a little bit, and Toronto might have that luxury. You know, too late. But three, that's a, you have yeah. to make the pick because of the upside, and yeah. you just pay one year's penalty. Look at the the years Philly has paid with Embiid mm-hmm. and now Simmons waiting for these guys. You know, marking in here just didn't make a lot of sense. And I just don't. If you're going to give up a top fifteen player, and like I said, it has to happen sometimes. He's, they're stuck in neutral. Butler probably would have tried to force his way out, even though by all accounts he's a, he seems like a good guy, and it's understandable. It's business. He doesn't want his prime wasted. But this could not have been the best offer on the table. And and getting to the pick itself, Markkanen at seven is just outrageous to me. You know, you look at some of the guys there. I, I know that they're not sure what the roster is. You know, does Dennis Smith, who went nine, you know, they have Rondo already. But Rondo, wait, these guys can all be bought out and moved anyway if you're going full rebuild. So at that point, Todd, wouldn't you just take the best player available? Whether it's Monk or whoever. You either take the French point guard with a little bit of size or you take that NC State point guard with really elite explosiveness and burst and and hops. He's got holes in his game, which is why he lasted till the ninth pick. Dennis Smith I'm talking about Mm -hmm. from NC State. But, yeah, you you take an athlete with some upside and... A guy who at least you know athletically can hang in the league and can place well, you know, actually Dennis Smith's defense he needs to work on. But um, yeah. either way, there's just there's a there's a bunch of different guys. But how about the Timberwolves next year, Todd? I mean, we were a little too early anointing them this year, but if you talk about a big four, well, at least three, we'll say with Butler, Towns, and Wiggins. We're not sure if Rubio's still going to be around, but it's a pretty good squad next year. Well, isn't Rubio? Doesn't he have to be around because they lost Dunn? And well, they they still might trade him. There's still rumblings of a trade there. Now they would need a point guard in return, but you know you get the idea that there's still some some talent in their backcourt. And I mean, Butler, Towns, and Wiggins. If Wiggins is your number three, I mean that I, I know there's a lot of, of roster shaking to do, but that's championship level good. Wiggins is a third option. Well, Wiggins as a number three, actually, um, you know, back to number one overalls, he was number one overall in 2014. I think people thought he might be a, a number one on a good team or a number two. And as, as it turns out, he, he probably is at this point a number three. His defense hasn't been maybe as consistent and as elite as they thought, a little bit more one-dimensional than kind of his rep coming in. But um yeah, as a number three with Cat, who's just absurd, and Jimmy Butler. Uh, and don't forget, Gorgie Dang really fills in the holes. And I think Rubio, to me, looks like a very good point guard fit for that team because he doesn't necessarily want to or need to shoot a lot, which so many of the other these point guards do. So yeah. if they're going to trade Rubio, you've got to get a point guard in return, and then you've got to make sure that point guard kind of fits and makes sense. I can't believe Rubio is only 26. It seems like he's been around forever, but he's 26 he years old. He was a boy wonder in 2009 when he was drafted. Yeah. He was a boy wonder. And I had, you know, I was emailing my buddy. He's trying to set some over-under win totals, and I kind of threw out 44 to 46 for Minnesota. It feels like with that much talent 
and you get Butler, who, you know, who combined with Thibodeau, and they were together in Chicago. They can kind of tell these kids, this is how you have to do. This is what a pro does. This is how you win at clutch moments. That kind of guidance, I think they're good for maybe 45-ish wins and maybe an eight or seven slot. I think they got to make, they got to be looking for the playoffs oh, yeah. this year. Oh yeah. yeah, it's that time for them. And and just quickly, the eight nine picks that we kind of touched on, Knicks and Mavericks, the French point guard Frankie Ndokina and Dennis Smith going to the Mavericks. Like both these picks, don't really have a problem with it. The Knicks could have got Smith, but I think both these guys are solid point guards. Teams that needed them, teams that were smart, which is weird to say in the Knicks case, but smart to just stay in their position, let the dominoes fall, and and end up with a quality point guard. No, I think the Knicks did the right thing for all the maybe say wrong and odd things that uh, Phil Jackson has done there. I think drafting Nikitalina, however you might say that, that name, um, and then Porzingis a couple of years ago, those seem to be the right moves. And uh, I, it's a whole different discussion if we're going to talk Phil Jackson, but let's just say I'm not impressed with his commitment to the job. No, that's 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 a safe take. That's a very responsible take there, Todd. Just to have one foot <laughs> on a beach in Cancun relaxing with a pina colada. Yeah. Um, I just don't know that his heart is so into this. And, you know, he's cashing some large paychecks and really just kind of like one last hurrah of moolah before he's kind mm-hmm. of done. So I think that's what it looks like to me. But anyway. Yeah, and, and, I, and I do want to just move to the next pick because this is another part of the draft that I don't think has been dissected enough, I'll say. That number 10 pick that was originally held by Sacramento was Zach Collins picked, but it was actually Portland who traded up to get the 10 spot. And before we get to Sacramento's side, Todd, Portland has some significant cap issues this year, but they had a hole in the middle, and they're going to go to Zach Collins for it. So do you like this pick for the Trailblazers? Um, I guess. I mean, to me, Monk was maybe the next best player. Obviously, they have a very nice shooting guard in C.J. McCollum. Monk, for all his elite athleticism and scoring savviness, he's got holes in his game. Um, so, you know, generally, and, and I'm, you know, just to be blunt, the American-born white guy in the NBA <laughs> tends to be kind of rare that they are elite. Yeah. So you just kind of you, you, you kind of wonder. I mean, Gordon Hayward is panned out. Um, you know, there's some white euros that you know like porzingis and a few others obviously but i don't know um we'll kind of we'll kind of see with this kid to be honest i just i wasn't overly impressed with his highlights um we'll, we'll kind of see what uh what this gonzaga guy can do for them but um yeah i like the deal for Sackdale. really now okay so this so collins fits a void i do want to point that out whether or not we think he's going to pan out Portland needed something in terms of size in the middle. So I think that was a need for their roster, and it was an affordable price. So we might have a little disagreement here because I don't think it was a terrible trade for Sacramento, but I would have taken Malik Monk at 10 and not thought twice about it. Now, I know there's questions about what he can do on the defensive end, how he fits into their, how he would have fit into their offense at 6'5", He's a heck of a shooter, Todd. He made big shots and has that competitive drive that Fox has. And yeah, he was his teammate in college. So I think you had a built, you would have had a built-in backcourt already. 
but then again, I, I can't. I gotta be honest. I was pretty high on Justin Jackson going into this draft, and they ended up with him at 15. So, uh, along with uh, Harry Harry Giles, who is going to come off the injury for Duke and maybe help them out inside. I understand the value behind it, but I do think Monk could, could be a special player in this league. If he's going to be special, he, he has to over. Uh, he's a skinny guy. First of all, he, let's let's get the good stuff. I mean, he has elite athleticism, elite hops, explosiveness. He scores. He's like a savant for for as young a kid as he is. You know, he can shoot it from the from Trey Land, but he can also just you know pull up little mid range, little floaty, but. He's a lean guy. He's a skinny guy. He kind of gets bullied a bit on defense. He's only 6'3". He's definitely a shooting guard. He's not even a combo guard. He's a shooting guard. His wingspan's 6'5", so he doesn't... Like like Dwayne Wade was 6'4", but had a 6'9 wingspan. So you didn't really have to worry so much when he came into the league as maybe an undersized shooting guard. And here we are, what, 13 years later, and you've got a guy who's even an inch shorter and 6'5 wingspan. So you're going to try to have to hide him on defense. He's playing alongside Kemba Walker, who's not a tall point guard. He's not a, you know, say, Markel Fultz or Lonzo Ball height guy. So he's got a guard. So when he plays right. alongside Kemba, he's going to guard, you know, two guards who outweigh him by 30, 35 pounds and are three inches taller. That's That's a tough Job. Yeah, and Todd, I think he might, uh, to answer, to kind of follow up on that, Kemba might be the odd one out in that situation. Just something I'm kind of looking out for. I don't know that Kemba's long. Like Charlotte, that's a nice point guard to just let go. Yeah, no, I know. I, I think there's, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see how this will pan out. And I understand the, the concerns with Monk. But to counter that, I would say the way the NBA is going, we're seeing a lot more small backcourt two-point guard sets even. And I think Monk can fit in more. I, you know, I, there's definitely going to be concerns with how he can defend, with who he's paired up with. But, well, to, but comparing it to Wade, I think it's a little different nowadays. It's more likely that a guy like this can succeed now than maybe 10, 15 years ago. I hear what you're saying, but also remember they drafted a highly athletic shooting guard a few years ago, Ben McLemore. That would pretty much be categorized at this point as a fail mm-hmm. and yes. when they because last year the main asset that they got was you know in terms of a body an actual body was healed um the new orleans rookie so uh, who's you know now going to be coming into a second year so to draft monk when you just acquired healed both of them pretty much like you know one of the top shooting guards of their drafts in back-to-back years I mean, I guess it's like a competition, like who's going to win out, and then you trade the other guy. I don't know. I think they kind of did the right thing. Because, uh, well, like, no. they got your guy at 15. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's fair. No, I, I think I think it's a responsible move. I just, I'm not entirely sure what Sacramento's building. I probably would have just gone talent at that point, a guy that slipped that was projected a little higher. And also, Todd, I think the 2013 draft, Ben McLemore's draft. I think we can pretty much categorize the entire draft as a bust at this point. Well, except that you got Greek Freak, who's <laughs> basically the tallest Two. guard in yeah. history and one of the more freaky talents to oh, ever know. place him up on an NBA court. So you and Rudy Gobert yeah. is a dominant big. So you, you've got a couple little little token. And you're right, and that is 
that those are the only two all stars in that entire draft class. <laughs> so I know that's point. Yes. Yeah. And, and if I had to relook at it right now, I'd probably say that maybe maybe for all time. Who knows? Yeah. All right, Todd Robinson, Money Mitch effect. I do want to kind of get moving through the rest of this draft. We we touched on and everybody that was taken in the top ten, eleven picks. But Todd, after that, were the other moves that surprised you, good or bad? The rest of the first and the second round, who else stood out for better or for worse for you? Well, um, I'm a big Bucks fan, a Greek freak and Thon maker. So I was very curious to see what they were going to do at number seventeen, and. I don't know, maybe they forced the, like, we've got to go long and athletic because that's our kind of reputation. Um, you know, they got DJ Wilson, who is very long and can shoot. They needed some shooting, too, um, which they're a little light on that with, with all their length. Um, you know, Thon Maker can shoot, but um, they needed some shooting. Um, I just, he's very soft. He, he, he rarely ever went to the free throw line. Very poor rebounder can play perimeter defense, really moves his feet incredibly uh, impressively for a 6'10 guy. He's one of those late bloomers who was a guard, a guard, always wanted to play on the perimeter, and then he kind of shot up, got a growth spurt, and, and became you know power forward sized. But um, you know we'll see how he develops, but he, he just needs a couple toughness pills, to be honest. Um, so that was interesting. Like I said, I like that Toronto guy. Even if he does miss a year recovering from injury, I, I think the upside of this Toronto mm-hmm. guy is a high motor, that OG Ananobi, high motor, seven foot six, he's listed at, at wingspan, just absurd, mm-hmm. and um, really agile at six foot eight. But also, unlike DJ Wilson and Markinen, um, he's tough. He, he battles, he's got a knack for battling. So I really liked him. He was the 23rd pick. And, you know, I, I kind of like the, the guy that Utah jumped up to grab at number 13, kind of a combo guard, Donovan Mitchell oh, yeah. out of Louisville. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting little pick. People complained about Miami taking Bam uh, out of bio, um, the big athletic center, but uh, at number 14 overall because they have Hassan Whiteside. But you know what? If you see a, a, a value drop to you in the NBA draft, Teams kill themselves drafting for need in the NBA draft, and sometimes they do it in the NFL draft. Um, but you really got to take the best asset, the best player, and you make it work after that. You know, it's not often that you're like Boston and you already have an elite team and you're drafting in the top five. Generally, you're kind of struggling. Miami barely missed making the playoffs last year, so mm-hmm. I like what they did with Bam. You know, it, it gives you flexibility if you yep. say, hey, we can make a blockbuster white side trade and throw in Bam in the middle, and, and, and it could work, you know. And so I think they did did a good thing. Your guy, Justin Jackson, you know, I was watching a, a little bit of a film on him. He reminds me of Matt Barnes uh, in looks, in builds, kind of slender, <laughs> light-skinned guy. Hopefully he's not as crazy. Yeah, yeah, Matt's got you know, exactly. But, um, but, but in terms of the can shoot a bit, can kind of do a lot of things pretty decently. Nothing, you know, not an elite athlete, doesn't do any one thing supremely, but kind of a nice little all-around asset. Um, a little glue guy, you know, sixth, seventh guy for a few years who could be productive. So Yeah, and I, I'd agree with those uh, assessments. You know, that's what Pat Riley does is he just gets the best assets. But uh, at this point, a couple, you know, one guy in the late first round that we didn't mention so far, I do have to bring up, Todd. I know you're a big Russ fan. I know you like what he can do on any given night. Terrence Ferguson to Oklahoma City, 
Very underrated pick. This was the kid that went to Australia instead of college. So there's not as much tape on him. He didn't dominate his league, but he's got a year of professional experience, and he's a pretty good athlete from what I hear. So I think that's going to be good at the shooting guard position there. And to look into the into the second round, two things stood out to me. One is a guy that I'm, I'm high on and I thought could have been late first round was Wesley Awandu. He's a senior. I know people look at that weirdly, but he's going to Orlando. He's a good 3 and D guy. That's what this league has become. I think that's a good position. But Todd, the number 38 pick that the Golden State Warriors pretty much paid for. You're reading my mind. Jordan Bell is going to have a good season next year. I'm telling you right now. This was typical Warriors doing good stuff. At the end of the first round. I don't know. I don't know, Todd. People make mistakes every year. We want to criticize these super teams for being super teams. But this is just a great move. I mean, take it at face value. The Warriors saw a player they liked. They paid the cost to get him. They're going to get him on a rookie contract. He's an athlete. He's going to fit in just fine with what they do. Athlete. He was the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year, and this is, you know, UCLA had a good team. Arizona had a good team. The, Oregon made the Final Four largely behind him. He was the first guy since Olajuwon to average 12 rebounds a game for the tournament for six straight uh, or five, five straight games. Whatever it was, they got to the Final Four, I think it was. So this guy, yeah, you know, he— He's a player, he's an athlete, and his offensive game's coming around. He's a perfect fit in Golden State. But to be honest, he's a perfect fit in today's NBA, period. So how the end of the first round, one of those teams doesn't nab him? If I'm the Lakers at 27, I'm all over him. I'm all over him if I'm the Lakers at 27. And they took this shooter, Kyle Kuzma. So, yeah, that (laughs) definitely, I'm on that. And then regarding um, your Terrence Ferguson thoughts, yeah, I'm – totally with you and as i was hawking the milwaukee 17th pick and waiting for it i was kind of hoping they would go terrence ferguson and they went you know the different direction mm-hmm. so yeah I, I like him too for sure well that's gonna do it for the draft discussion though i do need to ask you before we address some other topics and wrap this up todd who do you think is going to be the front runner for rookie of the year maybe some some opening odds as we look at this 17 18 season yeah, no, I actually I, I have some numbers because um, I don't agree. A lot of the the numbers that you see that are up now, they have Jason Tatum with the same chance as basically like Jonathan. Actually, a better chance of being rookie of the year than Jonathan Isaac, which to me makes no sense because you need minutes and opportunities. And Jason Tatum, like we talked about, is on a very good team playing behind two decent small forwards you know maybe he ends up being better than Jalen Brown I don't think he's going to match uh um Jay Crowder right away but certainly I don't I I look at as seven guys who as I was emailing my buddy today I said look there's seven guys and I think there's like a 97 percent chance <laughs> that one of these seven guys um I've got Ben Simmons there he is last year's draft yeah I was gonna say it has to include that guy Oh, yeah. No, I think Ben Simmons, Fox, and Ball all have about an equal chance of winning. I think Fultz a little notch below that. I've got Isaac a few notches below Fultz. And then I've got Dennis Smith because, look, that Dallas team, you know, the, the front court, you've got Nerlens Noel, who still is raw offensively four years into his career, whatever it is. You've got Dirk Nowitzki, who's 87 years old now, I think. 
there is no other point guard there, so he's basically handed the starters minutes right away, I would think. And his backcourt mate is Wesley Matthews, who will be 31 years old on opening night and shot 33% and 38% in March and April last mm. year and didn't even average nine points in a game in either month. So Dennis Smith will have a sneaky opportunity. It might be inefficient. He might get burned on defense a lot um, if he doesn't improve in those areas. But um, he will have a chance. And I think Monk, it was the seventh guy. I give him a lesser chance because I think, I just think defensively, you're going to have to pull him off and put Jeremy Lamb in there a lot with Charlotte just for defensive, you know, size purposes, what have you. But those are my seven um, with Ben, De'Aaron Fox, and Lonzo Ball as kind of co equals in the running to, to take the award with the right. other four guys, Fultz, Isaac, Smith, and Monk behind them. I would just say I like Fultz's chances because he knows how to put up numbers on subpar teams. So, so take for that what, what you will. Um, but then, you know, how subpar will that, – that gets into the wide-open unknown yep. of how do they play together, how good will they be together. And because – as we've noted a, a few podcasts ago, Sarek and Simmons are kind of similar type players, you know, so it's going to be an interesting dynamic. I, I'm very much looking forward to watching the 76ers play, that's for sure. It's going to be exciting. Well, Todd Speedburner Robinson, Money Mitch Effect, this was fun. I do got to ask you, though, about the awards tonight That we, as we record this, the NBA awards. Finally, it, it seems like forever ago the season ended. But yeah, it's they, really <laughs> silly that they wait this long to finally tell. I, I don't like it. They're kind of copying baseball, I think, which I don't like. I, I know, like and I'm not a big fan either. I liked it better when they just gave out the awards, you know, during the playoffs. Um, but dribble it out every three, four days. You dribble out a new award. Yeah, yeah it makes it exciting. Makes some players that didn't win play more possessed with a chip on their shoulder for the playoffs. Bitter, I think, when Dirk won the MVP. Out, they yeah. Just, they got bounced early by yeah. I think. State, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were out when he accepted it. It was funny. Uh, but just running through some of the main awards, Russell Westbrook, MVP, Malcolm Brogdon, Rookie of the Year, first ever second round pick to do that in the common era. Sixth Man of the Year, Eric Gordon of the Rockets, Mike D'Antoni, Rockets coach, coach of the year, most improved player was the Greek Freak, and defensive player was Draymond Green. So with that and some other things, Todd, anything stand out to you? Surprising, not surprising? The only thing that I would mention is that that is one of the weakest rookies of the year. I mean, I know he's a – look, he's a great second-round pick. It's so weak. <laughs> usually don't even make rosters. So hats off to Milwaukee for making the selection. But really, like that is uh, – that that is – that is a lesser light taking home. You have a lot of future Hall of Famers and All-Stars winning a Rookie of the Year, and um, I don't think this is going to be one of those cases. But uh, that, that's the one thing that stands out is just how, how weak. And we'd, we'd already talked about how strong the MVP candidates were this year. It's really a, a crime um, that they all had such epic seasons in the same year. But, um, yeah, that, that Rookie of the Year, you know, if Embiid can play 50 games, he's going to win it. But 31, I'm glad they didn't give it to Embiid because you just can't miss 60% of the action and then take home the hardware. That wouldn't have made sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to rehash my Harden, why I thought Harden should be MVP over Westbrook uh, argument. I mean, it's it sucks for all those guys, Kawhi included, that he was in that class uh, this year. Hats off to Russ. He definitely did as much as he could and deserved to win the MVP. The one thing I'll say, 
Todd, does anybody think that Mike D'Antoni is a better coach than Greg Popovich? I know he won the award, but come on. <laughs> well, you know, the, the teams outperform. And I know. <laughs> it's like Phil Jackson, how many times did he win, you know, when he was taking home hardware every year? But then they look at the players. So, actually, you know what, with Popovich, the record they had this year, actually – you could even say he did a better job because, honestly, Pau Gasol, he slipped pretty far down the mountain this year in terms of father time catching up to him. And I would think, especially looking at the playoffs, LaMarcus Aldridge, he's starting that, you know, down the other side of the mountain voyage. And so really, and you already knew that Tony Parker and Manu were, you know, well down on the downside of their career. So it is impressive it's it's really a testament to the drafting, the tutoring of these players, the development of these players, that they all work so well. And I think they won like 60 games in San Antonio. So, yeah, I actually, you know, I, I actually believe you there. Popovich probably should have taken it. Yeah, well, it's one of those things. I mean, I know it makes sense that D'Antoni deserved to win it. But, yeah, we know what the action on the court tells us. All right, Todd Robinson, lastly, I can't let you go going into this week without asking you who's going to win Wimbledon this year men and women i mean we'll we'll probably get into this briefly at a future or, or we'll get into this more uh, seriously dive deeper in a future podcast but who do you like going into the uh, all england club this year you know i got to say it, it it feels pretty kind of wide open because i i know fed you know destroys zverev in the final of a tune up in halley uh gets revenge on him for zverev beating him in the semis there a year ago so fed just continues to amaze that's that's really all you can say the odds makers have him as a slight favorite over uh murray the defending champ who crapped out in his tune up um so murray still does just not seem comfortable being the hunted the number one player he's just is not really you know, made the semis of the French, gave Warrenka a battle for four sets and then just folded and was up two sets to one and then just folded in the fifth. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, you know, then the odds makers had Joker and Nadal neck and neck as three and four, basically tied, but significantly below Murray and Fed. So I couldn't give that much faith to Nadal making he's he's like a five and four record at Wimbledon since making the finals in twenty eleven. He's five and four there. So and that's really he doesn't play a tune-up i don't think in maybe a couple years he did but that's really all the grass he ever plays on so i don't know about nadal i think fed is probably the favorite um i think you know raunich silich silich loses to lopez in a tune-up lopez is 35 years old (laughs) wins the sixth uh sixth tournament of of his career sixth title of his career and um i think you know what I, i was looking up the numbers Half of those titles are on grass, his career six titles, and four of his six career titles are after the his 31st birthday. So, wow. you know, the, the father time smiling upon Feliciano. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, if you're Chilich, you, you, you want to take him down. And Chilich won the first set there, too. So a little disappointing there. But, um, yeah, I think it's really wide open, Wimbledon. I, I just, yeah, and the girls is... More wide open than the boys. <laughs> I'll say Kvitova is she back? Because there's not that many. There's not that many real contenders based on who's injured, who's coming back from injury, who's you know Serena Williams being pregnant. Kvitova's won there twice. She won her tune-up last week in Birmingham. Could she do it? Oh, 
absolutely she's got to be you know salivating because who are the top women at the game you've got exactly. you know, kerber and halep and, and you know at the top of the rankings and you know svitolina they're not really grass quarters though i think kerber did make the finals uh last year but uh yeah no kvitova's got to be drilling at the opportunity which is so wonderful um if she can capitalize considering you know the fact that she was attacked and that that took her away from her her profession for a few months so good to see that she's back and and really with an opportunity to really to seize a third Wimby title yeah well, all right todd i'm gonna hold you to those picks but uh in all seriousness thanks for coming on the show this was fun we went into a deep dive of the draft and uh before we know it, basketball season will be starting soon, and we'll get to see all these young guys on the court. So thanks again for coming on the show. No doubt. And, you know, before basketball season starts, uh, I actually bought my first fantasy football mag today. Oh, no. It started already. It started already. It just gets the juices flowing when you just see all those rankings and you read the bios and you disagree with this and you agree with that. And I just love it. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some time before I get into it, but... Glad to know that you've gotten the ball rolling. But thanks again, Todd, for this week's appearance on the show. Okay, sure thing, Mitch. Thanks to Todd Robinson for being a guest on today's show. Reminder, you can check out all of his basketball, tennis, and other sports take at his website, Speedburner on Sports. A lot going on there. Make sure you check it out. Thanks again to him. Always a pleasure talk about the round ball on this show all right next on the money mitch effect it's steve levening a baseball correspondent slew alumni like myself and we're halfway through the baseball season we got to talk about the division races how good the dodgers are doing young prospects and bellinger aaron judge for the yankees who are going to be buyers and sellers at the trade deadline and also don't want to miss our thoughts on adrian beltray hitting his 450th home run it's steve levening on the money mitch effect talking baseball here it is All right, we've reached just about the halfway point of the Major League Baseball season. Time to talk some baseball on the Money Mitch Effect. And back on the show, reoccurring guest Steve Leveney. Steve, thanks for joining the program. Thanks for having me. It's crazy. We've gotten to this point, Steve. You know, we it just feels like yesterday we were talking about previewing the season. And I want to start in the NL West with one team in particular that a lot of people can make a case that are playing the best base is playing the best baseball uh, that is going on right now, and that's the LA Dodgers, fifty-two and twenty-seven in, on the on the season, nine and one in their last ten. They they lost recently, but they have been on fire, thirty-three and eleven at home. And Steve, there's a lot of ways to attack this, but why do you think, or what do you think, I should say, is the reason for every year it seems like they're able to trot out another rookie that just mashes. This year, Bellinger, Cody Bellinger, has been nothing short of amazing. Uh, and, you know, you look at Seager, Peterson. Is it a scouting thing? Is Are the Dodgers just one step ahead of everybody? How do you explain their success at finding these gems? Well, I mean, the front office is it's great. But hitting on all these prospects like they are with Seager and then Cody Bellinger this year, it's pretty nuts, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it does help having the pitching that they have because when some of these guys go into slumps eventually, like Jock Peterson did, 
having Clayton Kershaw there as as your anchor does help mitigate some of those issues. But the Dodgers, as you said, they're playing the best baseball in the league right now. And besides Houston, I don't think it's really close. Kershaw is not at – and it's weird because we I think we keep him to such a level. Kershaw is not really at that Kershaw level to which he's the best pitcher in baseball. And I think some other cases can be made for who is the best pitcher in baseball now. But you have guys like Kenley Jansen who I think just allowed his first walk of the year. So when you have a team that's that well-rounded and you have a team that can afford as many players as the, Dodger do, the Dodgers do – if you have a competent front office who can who can find some guys like a Cody Bellinger, I mean that's going to make things really easy for you. Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought up Kershaw, Steve, because he's not p- pitching horribly. He's he's at a standard that I think is un- unprecedented to sustain. But I look at it one way: if he does find a, a better groove, how good can this team really be? I mean, they're doing all this with their ace arguably having a subpar for his standard year. I mean, I think the ceiling is, is unbelievable with this team. And I would argue, too, that this is the first time, maybe in the Kershaw era, where they're the prohibitive favorites. You know, the Cubs are struggling. There's there's not that Cardinals team that's lurking, or, you know, the NL East has the Nats, but I don't think it's as strong as it was before. This might be the first team time that these Dodgers are prohibitive favorites in the NL. Yeah, and they're on something like 110 win pace. So... They definitely have that advantage because that division is difficult, too. The, the top two teams in that division, Arizona and Colorado, are both good teams. I mean, say what you will about San Diego and then kind of the listless Giants mm-hmm. this year. But their only competition in the NL is Washington, who is in a dreadful division. Otherwise, Miami selling Atlanta still Atlanta. The Mets are getting hurt at every turn. And then mm-hmm. Philly is uh, a couple of years off as well. Yeah, I think the Dodgers, I mean, the Dodgers are the scariest team in the NL, and I don't know if it's close. And I gotta ask you too what what is it what's going on in Scottsdale, Arizona? How did it all of a sudden become this hotbed for American athletes with Austin Matthews tearing up the NHL and now Cody Bellinger? I mean, what what I see out of this kid Bellinger is unbelievable. It's not just I mean, everyone wants to look at the home run hitting and the power, but he's getting on base too. He's doing well on the field. I mean, Bellinger looks like a five-star prospect already, and he's 21, 22 years old. Yeah, his OPS is over 1,000. Um, he's hitting. One of the things you worry about is the strikeouts, but everybody's striking out in this generation, so mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's really that big of a deal. At this point, the sky's kind of the limit. I know that, uh, I mean, he could be on track to have a 50-home run season in his first year, and some of that may be because of the uh, the baseballs this year potentially being a little juiced, but, I mean, you still got to hit him out, right? You do, and he's doing just that. It's been uh, a joy to watch him play. On the flip side of that, though, Steve, with this NL West being maybe the most intriguing division right now in baseball, how are the Giants this bad? I mean, we expected them to have a little bit of a letdown. Uh, you know, you can never really count them out, maybe except for this year. But the Giants are just dreadful. You could you could make a case they've been the worst team in baseball start to finish, and that's with Buster Posey having one heck of a season. Is there any explaining what's gone wrong for the Giants? They can't hit. They just <laughs> cannot hit. Losing pitching has obviously not helped them at all, but they're last in the league in home runs. Their average is dreadful. Besides Brandon Crawford, you don't have a whole lot there. 
it's really come down to that. I mean, they couldn't have, they couldn't hit for a couple of years now, but they were getting relatively timely hitting. But uh, it appears that the bottom sort of dropped out. Yeah, and Bumgarner's injury, I mean, it, it wouldn't have made a difference, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. But mentally, you know, when you have a team that's struggling and you see your ace go down, you think that might make uh, the morale go down even further. i got to be honest, though, Steve. If we would have done this interview, you know, a week or two ago, there'd be a lot more gloating on my end with how the Rockies have been, but they've lost seven straight games. Still, though. Yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> and I know we had talked a couple of, a couple of weeks ago about uh, how impressive that prediction was for the Rockies. Well, well hanging in there. Yeah. I mean, they're, the... <laughs> they're the third best team in the NL. It's just they're in a stacked division, so... You know, I gotta, I, I gotta tip my cap to Bud Selig on this one for adding that second wild card team to make me look good. Yeah, and so it's. Uh, I still think they can get in. I still think they're very competitive, and if they stop this skid, I mean, I think they can do pretty well. It's, isn't that? It's such a wild team to watch though this year. It really is. Well, you had Blackman, who I mean, th- their hitting was so was on a track that you knew was going to come back down to earth, and the pitching is solid but not great. I mean, you had Blackman leading the league, I think, for a while in home runs from the leadoff spot. I mean, you knew that yeah. <laughs> you knew that wasn't going to keep going the whole way, um, but they are in a tough division. It's a it's an interesting team to watch the Rockies and the Diamondbacks too, with what they've done. They might be one of the most fun teams to watch in baseball, just how they've kind of grown as a young team. The pitching's there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're on a pace right now, Steve, where you feel pretty confident that these three teams are going to make it just looking at the landscape of the other putrid wildcard potential teams. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a really fun thing to watch going down to the season as well, as long as the Dodgers don't just run away with this thing in a walk, which, I mean, they definitely have the potential to do. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You said 110 win pace, Dodgers prohibitive favorites, but only a game and a half up on the uh, yeah, Arizona right. Diamondbacks. So this is... <laughs> This is a wild division, but all right, Steve Levin, Money Mitch Effect, from one great division to one not-so-great division, the NL Central, is currently being led 79 games into the season by the Milwaukee Brewers, 41-38. and 38. Cubs are 39-38, just you know, roughly a game back. The Cardinals, Pirates, and Reds all under 500. I didn't expect this division to be good, but not too many people expected this, and it starts with the Cubs. Defending World Series champs, Steve, are... A game over 500? How does that happen? A lot of things. I mean, the pitching dropped off a little bit. Jake Arrieta has kind of, Oof. I mean, admittedly regressed. And you look at some of that, it, they just, they don't look like the same team. They're not hitting at all. It is a bit of a unique situation in that way that it, it's kind of working out well. It's impressive that there's still a game over 500 considering yeah, and you know what? I'd also like to add to that, like another team we're going to get to in a little bit that made the World Series, they are very, very lucky of the division that they play in because they're not really getting pushed. I mean, if they were in the NOS, look, think about how far out of the picture they'd be right now. Um, I think you oh, know, yeah. Schwarber getting sent down is is one you know big example of a, of a systematic problem that they aren't hitting that they aren't getting the timely hits, that Arietta and, and he hasn't been the only one, but he's been the biggest example of the fact that he's regressed. You know, when baseball's such a such an intricate game, Steve, you know this, that when you lose a little in a certain area, it can, you know, it, it all adds up. And I think you're seeing a little bit of, uh, of drawbacks with everything, and it's led to the bigger problem that this Cubs team just, you know, and they're also not winning close games. I mean, that's the other thing. And they, they haven't really played terrible for long stretches, but they haven't gone on a long winning streak either, and I think that's just you know 
wild to see because the talent on this roster is still there. Yeah, and it, it should be there, but maybe maybe they need something else. Um, and so you could look for them to be active at the trade deadline. I would I would expect that. What they're going to go for, I'm kind of interested in. Probably a bat of some sort. Uh, but, yeah, we'll definitely see. It, they are very lucky that they play in that division because that division is, is pretty rotten. Milwaukee even being at the top. And I like I like the story of Eric Thames. Um, I think that's fantastic, but I, I just don't see them being there at the end of the year. No, and, and they seem like the perfect candidate for a playoff team that you bet your house against and do pretty good with. Uh, St. Louis and Pittsburgh, though. I mean, these are teams that had some playoff success, Pittsburgh at least getting to the wild card round. Um, but, again, you know, 35-41 for the Cardinals, 35-42 for the Pirates. I think the St. Louis one's more shocking because a lot of people thought that they'd make a, a more of a leap this year. But this is another team that is having trouble hitting. And, and you know, with the pitching they have in St. Louis, it's it's a little startling to see them year after year run into the same rut, Steve, of where are the bats going to come from. The Cardinals are just an average team this year. Mm-hmm. Nothing is glaringly bad. Um, they were definitely having some bullpen issues there for a while, but they were getting saved by how good their starting pitching was. That's sort of fallen off as well. Um, but they're just kind of their record is is relatively indicative of of their level of talent right now. It doesn't look like some of the prospects that they've had have really have really shored up either. Yeah, well, it's going to be wild. And again, you know, there's six games under 500, but still right in the thick of this pretty crummy division. So we got to monitor that. And the last division the NL I want to discuss, Steve, is the NL East. And you have this weird dynamic going on right now where the Nationals are head and shoulders the best team. But there's still some questions whether this team is a legit, you know, World Series contender. I think it's safe to say we're all buying them as, uh, you know, the potential, the surefire almost division winner. But do you think this team can really make a deep run, get to the World Series, and potentially win it all, or do you still see some holes in, in their roster? Oh, they need a bullpen. They need... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look at them to to go after a guy like Kelvin Pereira or, uh, or Robertson because they really need a short that bullpen. Did you... Yeah, I was going to ask you, Steve, did you see the uh, the Nationals fan that passed away, what he put in his yeah. obituary? <laughs> Yes, that obituary was was perfect. Um, and, I mean, you're having a guy like Scherzer who's having a walkaway Cy Young year, potentially. Mm. Um, but just that bullpen is such a dumpster fire that they need to shore it up. But luckily, they have some trade pieces that they can move. And you'll probably find them at least get one reliever, if not two, at the deadline. Yeah, Scherzer 206 ERA this year his best year as a pro and that's saying something the, the Nats fans saying in lieu of flowers donate it donate any money to the uh, Nationals bullpen fund which was a great touch um, and this is coming from me being a, a Cleveland Browns fan where a guy once said for his obituary he wanted the Browns to be his pallbearers to let him down one final time so I really do <laughs> I really do like these good natured jokes um, but Hey, look, in all seriousness, Steve, bullpen is probably a, a nicer. I don't think any weakness is good, but you can find bullpen help at the trade deadline. You know, it's harder to get a slugger that's going to hit 330 and, or 300 and, and get on base, but I think they can find bullpen help at the deadline. It's going to take some digging, though. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the teams with, some, with bullpen help are going to be sellers. You, you have, like, the White Sox, potentially the Orioles, and so there's going to be some teams out there that are going to be willing to part with some some pretty good bullpen pieces. 
And the good thing for the Nats, Steve, is that the rest of this division, I, I really can't pick a contender. Like, I, I don't see a, a case where any one of these other four teams, I mean, the Phillies are have the worst record in baseball, but those other three, Atlanta, Miami, and the Mets, I mean, who could even make a run at them? The Mets have been the most injured team in baseball. The Braves are a nice story that they're you know only 37 and 39, and the Marlins are, yet again, stuck in neutral. Yeah, no, Washington <laughs> could potentially have this by the end of August. And that wouldn't surprise me at all. When you have, and don't get me wrong, I love Nick Marquez uh, from his time at the Orioles. Mm-hmm. But when your leading, um, your leading hitter in terms of run production is Nick Marquez on your team, that's, uh, that doesn't bode well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Well, we're gonna move on now to the American League. Steve Levine on the Money Mitch Effect, talking baseball about the halfway point of the season. AL West, Steve, the Astros, another team that you know had a little bit of a setback last year. You know, playoff run two years ago. This fun-loving team didn't make it last year. Some injuries. They're getting more healthy. They're playing great baseball. Fifty-two and twenty-six on pace for having the best team in the American League, clearly. But with this Astros team, you get a sense that it's so pitching. You know, so pitching-oriented. Do you think their offense is up to par, Steve, with being a legit World Series team? Asking it a different way? I think they are the best hitting team in baseball. Okay. Um, from a pure power production, they're right there. They're number one uh, in terms of home runs. Their average is high. You have all sorts of hitters on that team. You have a guy, a high average guy like Jose Altuve, and you have George Springer, who is one of my favorite players in baseball. <laughs> Another potential 50 home run guy. Yeah, no, he's they're been a beast. Team to watch. And I think that that in the AL, they're going to be a tough team to beat, but there, there does appear to be some, some more competition in the AL in terms of best team than in the NL. Well, and I and I agree with you. I, I do wonder, though, with any team that lives and dies by the home run, is just that can they you know, manufacture runs in big games. But they're, they're such a well-rounded team with what Dallas Keuchel's done. I know he's been, you know, missed a few starts, but... You like what this Astros team is doing. You like that they're taking a hold of this division. Though I do have to ask, there's still that you know little brother, big brother dynamic it would appear with the Rangers. I know they have a 12-and-a-half game lead, Steve, but something about that Rangers team just, just drives Houston crazy. Yeah, and it, it's kind of weird because it's not like the Rangers are, are anything special this year. They do have some interesting things. Uh, I mean, Joey Gallo, Noah Mazzara, um, and Yu Darvish is kind of back into form, but other than that, I think Houston, um, if they don't let, let Texas get too far into their head, I think Houston can walk away with this. I mean, it's not, and it's not like Houston is playing any different really at home than they are on the road. In fact, they're playing better on the road than they're playing at home. So I think that if they just keep this pace up, they'll be, they'll be handling things pretty well um, towards the end of the season. And the thing about the American League, too, Steve, is that you know, the wild card picture isn't as cut and dry right now. I mean, the second wild card is Minnesota, slightly ahead of Tampa Bay, so that gives you a sense of all these teams that are in it. I think Texas can push for a spot. Houston looks like the runaway division leader at the moment. Angels and Mariners still floating around, and I just want to bring up the Angels for a second. It's nice they're still competing. I was pretty bummed when Trout got hurt because we know what he's done, Steve, but he was on pace for maybe his best season as a pro. And to see that injury yeah. was a back-breaking doll, you know, baseball fans like us. Trout is the best player of the generation, and I don't think that's very... 
I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's been a very hot take. It's um, pretty fair. Production yeah. earlier this year. I mean, even if you would be able to come back, you'd still have a, a great year. But one of the things that him being out has done is it kind of paved the way for the Aaron Judge show in terms of uh, AL dominance, right? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And I, and I think, too, I mean, look, Judge was going to have his year, but it did open up a void of, you know, the, 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 the biggest bet in the league was gone. Here comes this, this monster <laughs> that we're going to get to in a second, this guy that looks like he was built in a lab in California to just destroy the league from a long ball standpoint. Uh, I do want to talk about the AL Central first before we get to that AL East, Steve. And, and the Indians right now are in first place by a half game. But i got to tell you, it's been a pretty frustrating season for the Indians, who are nine games above 500 on the road and five games under 500 at home. You know, the frustrating part of this season for me as an Indians fan, and it goes back to this weekend. You have a weekend prior to that where they sweep Minnesota at Minnesota, four games, win them all. You think, okay, it's time to take control of this also pretty putrid division but then they give it right back getting swept at home by the twins there's an inconsistency factor there and i think like a lot of the teams here it starts with the bats there's there's like there's a chill going on in that lineup only a few guys ramirez being at the top of the list are hitting right now and it's frustrating to watch as a tribe fan yeah and i know for a while there minnesota was was taking the division you're seeing kansas city sort of creep up as well i think um Kansas City's record in its last 25 games is, is pretty nuts. But as you said, the, the pitching's been there for Cleveland, but the bats really haven't. Though I will say the the addition of Edwin Encarnacion was, was kind of a perfect one. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the rest of that lineup can really pick it up, I think that, that Cleveland has the horsepower in that division to go. But Minnesota has been an interesting, interesting story because you know, for a couple of years, they've had some, some highly touted prospects that just kind of haven't gotten there yet. Um, no. But things seem to be working out for them. No, they're a solid team. I just don't think they're ready to really contend. And it's frustrating because you look at the talent on both teams and you think, okay, unbiasedly speaking, the Indians should be winning this division. Encarnacion's starting to hit more. But you know how frustrating it is, Steve, as a baseball fan, especially you know, watching, say, the Orioles when you get a gem out of a pitcher and you just waste it. That was me at the Indians game on Saturday watching Kluber strike out 13 batters and Cody Allen blow the game on his own jersey night. So I'm a little frustrated yeah. there. I'm a little frustrated there, but it should be the Indians division. We, we You'd like to think that they'll snap out of it. The Royals, though, are an interesting story. They're they're working hard to compete, but I still see this as major you know blow-up potential given the salary ramifications of some of those players and, and looking at if their window has what it looks like indeed pass. I think they could be moving some major pieces, you know, next month. Yeah, with with everything that's kind of going on with the Royals, they appear to be right at the end of their window. Um, and with the pieces that they had, you have Jason Vargas having kind of an unreal year. Um, and his, his main stats kind of belie the actual issues underneath. Um, Kelvin Herrera, and you have some of these guys who are legitimate trade pieces. If I was the Royals, I'd be selling at the, the deadline. Um but with that team the past few years, who knows? I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they do, especially if they keep this pace up, because they could be, I mean, they're already, what, two and a half games out of the division right now. They could be tied for the division lead yeah. in July, and that's going to, it's going to be a hard sell to fans when you say, okay, it's time to sell this team. Yeah, I mean, they do have to find a way, maybe not at this deadline, 
but they've got to reload that farm system that got them good because it is so bare right now and the dark days could be ahead for Kansas City. All right, one last division to talk. Steve Levin, Money Mitch Effect. That is the AL East, and we'll go bottom up for this one. Speaking of a team that might be a major seller, Steve, the Toronto Blue Jays, I know they're only six and a half games out, but four games under five hundred. Another team that you, you got to start asking questions. Is the window going? Is Toronto still... Do they still are they still viewed around the league as a legitimate contender? What what's your take on that? One of the nice things that Toronto has going for it is it does have some young pitching. They're not going to sell a guy like Stroman, obviously, but maybe it's time to start selling some of the bigger bats. They're just not hitting this year. Justin Smoke is their best hitter, and Justin Smoke's kind of having a breakout year of sorts, but. Um, the rest of that team's kind of listless. That the batting average, the team batting average is really low. It is, but you know what's funny too that I, that I bring this up. There are one, two, three, four, five, let's see, six teams within four games of a wild card spot, not counting the two in there. So <laughs> we we talked about blowing a team up, but they're right there, you know. And and they haven't been hitting. Batista's getting up there in age. The pitching has been up and down, but yeah, there are some prospects there. So like. We said with Kansas City, they aren't in a rush to replenish the farm system. Toronto might be able to just ride this out, you know, have a little setback and go to their to their next wave. But Steve, your Baltimore Orioles, thirty-eight and thirty-eight, five hundred, and that it's so it's so perfect for what this team's done because ten games above five hundred at home, ten games under five hundred on the road. It's been a very pedestrian, pretty much middle of the road season for the Orioles, in my perspective. I saw a stat the other day. In the past 162 games, the Orioles are 81 and 81 with a negative run differential of over 60. Wow! The bats, the bats are there for the O's somewhat. You have guys like Trey Mancini, who's having a huge year, would be a Rookie of the Year candidate if it wasn't for Aaron Judge. But that pitching is a it's atrocious. That starting pitching is awful. There was a streak throughout most of the month of June where the Orioles gave up five runs or more a game. The bullpen is taxed. You had guys like Darren O'Day out, Zach Britton out. Um, it, it, it's a pretty rough situation. As an Orioles fan, I would like them to be sellers. Oh. Um, and especially especially if they're not going to sign Machado. That would hurt, and huh? That, that would hurt losing yeah, him for it, you. It would, but, but I do think what he could bring back um, would help replenish the farm system because the pitching is just not there. You're seeing a huge regression from Kevin Gossman. Dylan Bundy's had a good year, but uh, he does seem to be sort of reaching his peak. The, the pitching, otherwise, is it's painful to watch. It really is. Um, they had 19 games there where they allowed five runs or more, and there was a time when an eight-run lead is not safe, and that's not a playoff team. Yeah, no, I was going look at it. You know, I was going to ask you, too, so you're not that optimistic that this team, I mean, only a game and a half out of the wild card, but there's a lot of teams in their way. Are you, is there any optimism that this team could, you know, go on a streak, get it together, and, and push for the wild card, or do you think unbiasedly that it's just not there this year? The pitching is not there to compete in the playoffs. I just, I don't think it's there. I don't think it's going to be there, and you're seeing bad years from, from some of the guys that have just recently signed a pretty big contract. Um mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Davis, Mark Trumbo, people like that, and I think it's uh, the window's just about shut, and so maybe it's time to solve for the Orioles. 
you know, one of the things you look for at this time of year to make these runs and to separate yourself is pitching. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's, yeah, that's, you know, do you proactively sell to, you know, make the long play? It's a tough decision Baltimore's going to have to make. I, and I'll say this, the team in third right now, you know, sitting in one of the, uh, <laughs> sitting right near one of the wild card spots, the Tampa Bay Rays. Steve, Kevin Cash might be my manager of the year so far in the in the AL um, because I didn't expect this team to be much of anything. 41-38, and 38, right in the thick of a brutal division race. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but I'm more than pleasantly surprised with what Tampa Bay's done this year. Yeah, they're a fun team to watch. Um, the bats are starting to show up. Logan Morris and Corey Dickerson, the pitching, uh, the pitching's pretty consistent. I think they end the season potentially about the Yankees. And so... Uh, I'm bullish on, on Tampa Bay being a wild card team, just because I the Yankees have kind of fallen off their their crazy pace that they had. But yeah, Kevin Cash, he's figuring out how to do it with that team, and they're they're a great team to watch. Is Longoria uh, a Ray this time? I know a little over a month from now. Do you think he's still on Tampa Bay? It depends on. I mean, obviously, it depends on how they do the next month, but. Mm. It's possible if they could if they find a nice deal for him. Tampa Bay is not shy about selling. They never have been. They could potentially unload them if it gives them if it nets them some pretty decent prospects. Exactly. Really, it, it, it's wild to think because Longoria has been the face of that franchise for for what feels like a decade. It's crazy to think too. He's the best Ray of all time. And if you if you oh, look yeah. at, if you look at each each organization's best player of all time, nothing against Evan Longoria, but you're like, whoa, you know, he's their best player. Of all time, so that you talk about a hard sell <laughs> to getting rid of the yeah. best ever for a team could be tough. But unfortunately for a lot of us outside of the New England and New York area, it's back to being a Red Sox Yankees race in this division. Boston at forty three and thirty four, being uh, a game ahead of the Yankees right now. The Yankees, I mean, Aaron Judge. Uh, there's two ways to look at it. What Judge is doing is remarkable. I mean, having one of the best 100-game starts to a career that we've ever seen. But the scary thing is, Steve, they're set up for long-term success. They're doing it a smart way, not the old conventional Yankees way of just paying for free agents. This Yankee farm system is loaded. Yeah, it does feel reminiscent of the Yankees of about 20 years ago, right at the beginning of their mm-hmm. initial window in the mid-'90s, where they had a lot of this young talent that they that they brought up. And... I don't know how the Yankees do it, but they always seem to get some of these guys. And it doesn't it doesn't hurt that they have um, the budget to be able to pay for them when they come into their prime either. But Aaron Jones' start is remarkable, even as someone who is admittedly not a Yankees fan. My earliest Orioles memory is um, Jeffrey Myers <laughs> stealing the ball from Tony Tarasco's glove in the '96 playoffs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, but Jones' start it's as a baseball fan, it's incredible to watch. And just watching him at the plate, he does not look like a baseball player. He looks he's absolutely gigantic. Um, but he's awesome, and he mashes, and he does all of the fun things that uh, that baseball fans like to see. You know, that being said, though, Steve, I do like the Red Sox more than the Yankees in this division race. And part of it is, I think, the one Yankee weakness right now that is more of a long-term fix is that pitching. Their bullpen, yeah. you know, and some of their starters have been getting ravaged. But Boston made or made, Boston was made a major player in the free agency race this year. You know, they go after a guy like Chris Sale, and say what you want about that decision to get him and the money they spent. But Sale's been amazing this year. I mean, he's living up to the hype. He's been 
you know, leading the league in strikeouts with 155. He, he's been good. He's been a difference. And I just think Boston's more built more for a longer postseason success than the Yankees this year. Yeah, Boston is definitely more slump-proof than the Yankees, Yankees are, and I think that's going to help them out in the future. You have seen a drop-off with with a guy. I mean, just look at Rick, Cy Young winner Rick Porcello. Mm. Um, that drop-off's been, been kind of nuts, but Chris Sale is – He's Chris Sale, and they got exactly what they thought they'd get out of him, and that's one of the best pitchers in the AL, if not the best pitcher in the American League. On top of that, you have Kimbrell, um, and Joe Kelly has really turned into quite an impressive relief pitcher. But from the hitting standpoint, I mean, you had Xander Bogarts, Mookie Betts, all these strong, strong hitters on this team. I think Boston's going to win this division. Yeah, I guess my only issues with this team are consistency-based. You know, they've had some up-and-down play at times. And without Ortiz there, who's going to come up with the big hits in the playoffs? Last year, they were pretty listless getting swept by the Indians. So, But I think the pieces are there. I think it can come together. And, and they might be a team that makes a short-term addition at a trade deadline to make a push with the AL uh, as open as it is. So we'll see. But... All right, Steve Levine, this was uh, an interesting chat. Thanks for coming on. And i gotta, I got to bring up a couple things before we go. Adrian yep. Beltre hitting his 450th home run. To put that in perspective, only Cabrera and Poole, so the only other active players to get to that milestone. So I think, I, think we, I think we all collectively don't appreciate how good Beltre is. Adrian Beltre has been one of my favorite players in baseball for a long time. He's unheralded for how good he has been. And I think it's because... He's never been the best player in the league. He's just always been consistently great. I was looking earlier at uh, where he stands in terms of wins above replacement for his career. Because not only has the guy been a prolific hitter, but as a defensive third baseman, he's yeah. been pretty fantastic. Right now, a, a baseball reference has him at 44, the 44th best player all time uh, in terms of war. <laughs> I think he's a Hall of Famer. Um, I think as he nears the end of his career, um, which which I think he's starting to do, I know that the pop isn't in his bat as much this year, um, and his fielding's not as good. I, I think if he doesn't get in the Hall of Fame, he might not be a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I think if he doesn't get in the Hall of Fame, considering some of the people who they let in, um, like he's a better guy than Chipper Jones. Everybody <laughs> kind of thinks he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, and the stat I saw was 13th war, just defense. So if you just want to go by a defensive, I mean, he's been great. and He's going to get to 500. I mean, he's got enough left in him. I think that's almost a given. Yeah, I don't want to get into what goes into who's a Hall of Famer and who votes on it because I'll get heated and, you know, maybe say some things I regret. But, you know, Beltre is a, a great <laughs> – Beltre is a very, very great player that I just don't think was appreciated. He kind of went under the radar because, you know, his eras overlapped some of the greats and – you know, it's been uh, fun to watch him. And uh, the last thing, we're getting ready for the Midsummer Classic, the All-Star Game. And I think more than the game in Miami, you know what I'm looking forward to, and that's Judge versus Stanton in the Home Run Derby. And the Home Run game, the home run Derby's a uh, new format. What do you think of it? I think it's perfect. I, I really I like think it, too. It yeah. some additional intrigue. Yeah, I'm a fan as and, well. Yeah, and, it, and see... The judge show is, is going to be awesome. But as you know, Stanton always shows up. Uh, and so it, it's going to be cool to watch. And I think that the Derby is one of those things that that even the more casual 
fans of sports, not just baseball. The Derby is one of those things to watch, and I know there there have been some judge highlights on, on things like Sports Center, but I think this is going to be kind of his, his coming out party to the world. If uh, for those of us uh, that haven't gotten to really see the true power, because the guy standing at the plate is he's a sight to behold. He really is. He is, and the other thing too, you know. Stanton shows up in the home run derby. Stanton's a California guy too. Judge is kind of coming up on his corner. And if you if you if you watch some of the uh, the questions, Stanton doesn't really like being asked about Aaron Judge. So I'm in it for that as well. The drama of there's this new you know slugger coming up and approaching Stanton's turf. So I think I think it's going to be great. Now and we we're we've been waiting on a showdown like this for a while. It's been a couple years, a couple derbies since we've seen two heavyweights just go at it. Exactly. I'm, I can't wait. Should be fun. All right, Steve Loveny, this was uh, a great chat. Thanks for coming on. And, uh, yeah, you're going to have a pretty busy month coming up, you know, with uh, some wedding bells in there, too. So congrats on that. Good luck. And uh, try to, you know, get some sleep when you can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it's going to be pretty tough. All right, Steve, this was fun. Money Mitch Effect, talking baseball. Hope to have you on soon. Thanks again. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening to the Money Mitch Effect. Thanks again to Steve Leveney and Todd Speedburner Robinson for being the guests on the show. Tim Adams for the beats. Brian Nelson for the logos. Thanks to them as well. This was episode 91, the Sergey Fedorov episode of the Money Mitch Effect. And another note to make, when I recorded the basketball talk with Todd Robinson, the Phil Jackson news hasn't, hadn't broke yet, so... No more Phil Jackson on the Knicks uh, as the people celebrate New York for a half second until they realize that James Dolan is still their owner. Tough break for Knicks fans yet again. But want to say also congratulations to the NHL Hall- Hockey Hall of Fame class. Paul Correa, Tamu Salani, and Mark Recchi, among others, to make it. Thanks to them. We'll get you in, JR. Jeremy Roenick. Don't worry. You'll be in soon. But that was today's show. Reminder to check out all the episodes of the Money Mitch Effect on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect. Follow me at Twitter, Money Mitch M21, for sports and other takes. We got a Wimbledon preview coming up uh, in a few days as well, with Wimbledon starting on Monday. And another show as well. We're going to keep it moving here. We got more content, some interviews to get to. It's a summer, but the grind doesn't stop. No sleep, like LeVar Ball says. No days off, but enough about him. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Mitch Michael signing off. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep watching, keep enjoying, and keep loving sports.